Chapter Seven, Part One of the Seven Lamps of Architecture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Todd Ulbrick. The Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin. Chapter Seven, The Lamp of Obedience, Part One. One. It has been my endeavour to show in the preceding pages how every form of noble architecture is in some sort the embodiment of the polity, life, history, and religious faith of nations. Once or twice in doing this, I have named a principle to which I would now assign a definite place among those which direct that embodiment. The last place, not only as that to which its own humility would incline, but rather as belonging to it in the aspect of the crowning grace of all the rest. That principle, I mean, to which polity owes its stability, life its happiness, faith its acceptance, creation its continuance. Obedience. Nor is it the least among the sources of more serious satisfaction which I have found in the pursuit of a subject that at first appeared to bear but slightly on the grave interests of mankind that the conditions of material perfection which it leads me in conclusion to consider furnish a strange proof how false is the conception how frantic the pursuit of that treacherous phantom which men call liberty most treacherous indeed of all phantoms for the feeblest ray of reason might surely show us that not only its attainment but its being was impossible there is no such thing in the universe there never can be. The stars have it not, the earth has it not, the sea has it not, and we men have the mockery and semblance of it only for our heaviest punishment. In one of the noblest poems for its imagery and its music, belonging to the recent school of our literature, footnote, in one of the noblest poems, Coleridge's Ode to France, Ye clouds that far above me float and pause, Whose pathless march no mortal may control, Ye ocean waves that wheresoe'er ye roll, Yield homage only to eternal laws, Ye woods that listen to the night-bird's singing, Midway the smooth and perilous slope reclined, Save when your own imperious branches swinging Have made a solemn music of the wind Where like a man beloved of God Through glooms which never woodman trod, how oft pursuing fancies holy, my moonlight way o'er flowering weeds I wound, inspired beyond the guess of folly, by each rude shape and wild unconquerable sound. O ye loud waves, and O ye forests high, and O ye clouds that far above me soared, thou rising sun, thou blue rejoicing sky, yea, everything that is and will be free, bear witness for me, wheresoe'er ye be, with what deep worship I have still adored the spirit of divinest liberty. Noble verse, but erring thought. Contrast George Herbert. Slight those who say amidst their sickly healths, Thou livest by rule. What doth not so, but man? Houses are built by rule and commonwealths. Entice the trusty son, if that you can, from his ecliptic line. Beckon the sky. Who lives by rule, then, keeps good company. Who keeps no guard upon himself is slack, and rots to nothing at the next great thaw. Man is a shop of rules, 
a well-trust pack whose every parcel underwrites a law lose not thyself nor give thy humours way god gave them to thee under lock and key End of footnote. the writer has sought in the aspect of inanimate nature the expression of that liberty which having once loved he had seen among men in its true dyes of darkness but with what strange fallacy of interpretation since in one noble line of his invocation he has contradicted the assumptions of the rest and acknowledged the presence of a subjection surely not less severe because eternal how could he otherwise since if there be any one principle more widely than another confessed by every utterance or more sternly than another imprinted on every atom of the visible creation that principle is not liberty but law two the enthusiast would reply that by liberty he meant the law of liberty then why use the single and misunderstood word if by liberty you mean chastisement of the passions discipline of the intellect subjection of the will if you mean the fear of inflicting the shame of committing a wrong if you mean respect for all who are in authority and consideration for all who are in dependence veneration for the good mercy to the evil sympathy with the weak if you mean watchfulness over all thoughts temperance in all pleasures and perseverance in all toils if you mean in a word that service which is defined in the liturgy of the english church to be perfect freedom why do you name this by the same word by which the luxurious mean license and the reckless mean change by which the rogue means rapine and the fool equality by which the proud means anarchy and the malignant mean violence call it by any name rather than this but its best and truest is obedience obedience is indeed founded on a kind of freedom else it would become mere subjugation but that freedom is only granted that obedience may be more perfect and thus while a measure of license is necessary to exhibit the individual energies of things the fairness and pleasantness and perfection of them all consist in their restraint compare a river that has burst its banks with one that is bound by them and the clouds that are scattered over the face of the whole heaven with those that are marshalled into ranks and orders by its winds so that though restraint utter and unrelaxing can never be comely this is not because it is in itself an evil but only because when too great it overpowers the nature of the thing restrained and so counteracts the other laws of which that nature is itself composed and the balance wherein consists the fairness of creation is between the laws of life and being in the things governed and the laws of general sway to which they are subjected and the suspension or infringement of either kind of law or literally disorder is equivalent to and synonymous with disease while the increase of both honour and beauty is habitually on the side of restraint or the action of superior law rather than of character or the action of inherent law the noblest word in the catalogue of social virtue is loyalty and the sweetest which men have learned in the pastures of the wilderness 
is fold. 3. Nor is this all, but we may observe that exactly in proportion to the majesty of things in the scale of being is the completeness of their obedience to the laws that are set over them. Gravitation is less quietly, less instantly obeyed by a grain of dust than it is by the sun and moon, and the ocean falls and flows under influences which the lake and river do not recognize. So also in estimating the dignity of any action or occupation of men, there is perhaps no better test than the question, are its laws straight? For their severity will probably be commensurate with the greatness of the numbers whose labor it concentrates or whose interests it concerns. This severity must be singular, therefore, in the case of that art, above all others, whose productions are the most vast and the most common, which requires for its practice the cooperation of bodies of men, and for its perfection the perseverance of successive generations. And taking into account also what we have before so often observed of architecture, her continual influence over the emotions of daily life, and her realism, as opposed to the two sister arts which are in comparison but the picturing of stories and of dreams, we might beforehand expect that we should find her healthy state in action dependent on far more severe laws than theirs, that the license which they extend to the workings of individual mind would be withdrawn by her, and that in assertion of the relations which she holds with all that is universally important to man, she would set forth by her own majestic subjection some likeness of that on which man's social happiness and power depend. We might, therefore, without the light of experience, conclude that architecture never could flourish except when it was subjected to a national law as strict and as minutely authoritative as the laws which regulate religion, policy, and social relations. Nay, even more authoritative than these, because both capable of more enforcement as over more passive matter, and needing more enforcement as the purest type not of one law nor of another, but of the common authority of all. But in this matter experience speaks more loudly than reason. If there be any one condition which, in watching the progress of architecture, we see distinct and general, if, amidst the counter-evidence of success attending opposite accidents of character and circumstance, any one conclusion may be constantly and indisputably drawn, it is this that the architecture of a nation is great only when it is as universal and as established as its language, and when provincial differences of style are nothing more than so many dialects. Other necessities are matters of doubt. Nations have been alike successful in their architecture in times of poverty and of wealth, in times of war and of peace, in times of barbarism and of refinement under governments the most liberal or the most arbitrary. But this one condition has been constant, this one requirement clear in all places and at all times, that the work shall be that of a school, that no individual caprice shall dispense with or materially vary accepted types and customary decorations, and that from the cottage to the palace, and from the chapel to the basilica, and from the garden fence to the fortress wall, every member and feature of the architecture of the nation shall be as commonly current, as frankly accepted, 
as its language or its coin. 4. A day never passes without our hearing our English architects called upon to be original, and to invent a new style, about as sensible and necessary an exhortation as to ask of a man who has never had rags enough on his back to keep out cold, to invent a new mode of cutting a coat. Give him a whole coat first, and let him concern himself about the fashion of it afterwards. We want no new style of architecture. Who wants a new style of painting or sculpture? But we want some style. It is of marvelously little importance if we have a code of laws and they be good laws, whether they be new or old, foreign or native, Roman or Saxon, or Norman or English laws. But it is of considerable importance that we should have a code of laws of one kind or another, and that code accepted and enforced from one side of the island to another, and not one law made ground of judgment at York and another at Exeter. And in like manner it does not matter one marble splinter whether we have an old or new architecture, but it matters everything whether we have an architecture truly so called or not. That is, whether an architecture whose laws might be taught at our schools from Cornwall to Northumberland, as we teach English spelling and English grammar, or an architecture which is to be invented fresh every time we build a workhouse or a parish school. There seems to me to be a wonderful misunderstanding among the majority of architects at the present day as to the very nature and meaning of originality, and of all wherein it consists. Originality in expression does not depend on invention of new words, nor originality in poetry on invention of new measures, nor in painting on invention of new colors, or new modes of using them. The chords of music, the harmonies of color, the general principles of the arrangement of sculptural masses have been determined long ago, and in all probability cannot be added to any more than they can be altered. Granting that they may be, such additions and alterations are much more the work of time and of multitudes than of individual inventors. We may have one Van Eyck, who will be known as the introducer of a new style once in ten centuries, but he himself will trace his invention to some accidental by-play or pursuit, and the use of that invention will depend altogether on the popular necessities or instincts of the period. Originality depends on nothing of the kind. A man who has the gift will take up any style that is going, the style of his day, and will work in that, and be great in that, and make everything that he does in it look as fresh as, as if every thought of it had just come down from heaven. I do not say that he will not take liberties with his materials or with his rules. I do not say that strange changes will not sometimes be wrought by his efforts, or his fancies in both. But those changes will be instructive, natural, facile, though sometimes marvellous. They will never be sought after as things necessary to his dignity or to his independence. And those liberties will be like the liberties that a great speaker takes with a language, not a defiance of its rules for the sake of singularity, but inevitable, uncalculated and brilliant consequences of an effort to express what the language without such infraction could not. There may be times when, as I have above described, 
the life of an art is manifested in its changes, and in its refusal of ancient limitations. So there are in the life of an insect, and there is great interest in the state of both the art and the insect at those periods when, by their natural progress and constitutional power, such changes are about to be wrought. But as that would be both an uncomfortable and foolish caterpillar, which, instead of being contented with a caterpillar's life, and feeding on caterpillar's food, was always striving to turn itself into a chrysalis, and as that would be an unhappy chrysalis, which should lie awake at night and roll restlessly in its cocoon in efforts to turn itself prematurely into a moth, so will that art be unhappy and unprosperous, which, instead of supporting itself on the food and contenting itself with the customs which have been enough for the support and guidance of other arts before it and like it, is struggling and fretting under the natural limitations of its existence and striving to become something other than it is. And though it is the nobility of the highest creatures to look forward to and partly to understand the changes which are appointed for them, preparing for them beforehand, and if, as is usual with appointed changes, they be into a higher state, even desiring them and rejoicing in the hope of them, yet it is the strength of every creature be it changeful or not to rest for the time being contented with the conditions of its existence and striving only to bring about the changes which it desires by fulfilling to the uttermost the duties for which its present state is appointed and continued end of part one recording by todd albrick